Do biblical time prophecies still have any relevance for Christians today? If so, how? We'll explore these questions and more today in episode 34 of Aventology entitled, The Longest Time Prophecy. Welcome to Adventology, the podcast dedicated to helping you find answers to the big questions of life so that you can live a life of influence that ultimately impacts the world for eternity. Each week, we will explore a different chapter in the story of humanity that centers around Jesus Christ and culminates at His second coming. Whether you know Jesus already or are simply curious about what the Bible has to say about the end of the world, this podcast has something for you. Here now is the host of Adventology, Travis Walker. I don't know about you, but most people I know these days chuckle or give a subtle eye roll when they hear someone trying to predict the future with any measure of certainty, especially when they are using the Bible as evidence. Why is that? I know for me personally, I've lived through many predictions of the end of the world coming from both biblical and secular sources. Of course, none of those predictions or prophecies have come to pass. We are all obviously still here. But this then begs another question. Why are we, myself included, so viscerally affected by these propositions? And why do we love the movies that dramatize them? Could it be that our society has this nagging feeling that it can't shake, that something isn't right in our world, that we are headed towards something undeniably cataclysmic and yet is unwilling to admit it because of what it might imply for how we are to live our lives today? I suppose it will always be impossible to know exactly what everyone is thinking. But we can go back and examine what has happened in the past that has gotten us to the place we are today. The truth is that there are many time prophecies in the Bible. But what most don't realize is that they all have been fulfilled. According to the Bible, we are now living in the time of the end. But that doesn't help us in our present dilemma, does it? So is there a way to be rightfully skeptical about modern time prophecy predictions without abandoning the biblical record that such prophecies exist? In our last episode, we actually began looking at the most repeated time prophecy in the Bible, the 1260-day or 1260-year time prophecy that is found both in the book of Daniel and also in the book of Revelation. In fact, the time period is mentioned a total of six times, twice as 1260 days, twice as 42 months, and twice as a time, times, and half a time. That's quite a lot when you think about it. And so we've already seen how this time prophecy refers to both the reign of the Antichrist as well as his attack on the Word of God, symbolized by the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Then we also saw that at the end of the 1260 years, in 1798, the Word of God would be unleashed on the world, particularly the book of Daniel, which was said to be sealed until the time of the end. In fact, Daniel 12 verse 4 says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase." Unfortunately, by 1798, the Protestant Reformation had already splintered into many of the same denominations that exist today. What started with Luther as a cry to return to the Bible and the Bible only 
was soon met with the stark reality of human nature. We only progress in truth as far as our leaders take us. Denominations formed within Protestantism primarily because, as God continued to shine light on the scriptures and more truth was revealed to his people, some refused to walk in the present truth and were content to remain in the truth they already had. Jesus had warned his disciples against this tendency to become complacent with the truth when he said in John chapter 12, verse 35 and 36, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. I don't know if you caught it, but this statement of Jesus really flies in the face of post-modernity in several significant ways. Post-modernity says that truth is relative, meaning truth conforms to each of us rather than us conforming to it. However, according to this statement, not only does Jesus expect us to conform ourselves to the truth, but since truth is progressive rather than relative, even accepting the truth, quote-unquote, as a proposition isn't enough. We must allow the truth to lead us further into more truth. Progressive truth never contradicts prior revelation. However, prior revelation true as it may be, is not present truth. Therefore, according to Jesus, we can actually accept past truth and still be in darkness at the same time if we haven't moved forward into present truth. I don't know about you, but this concept blows my mind. This means that the abstract concept of following Jesus, someone we cannot actually see, has a literal element to it. Discipleship, then, is not intellectual assent to a creed or a certain set of fundamental beliefs, but it is a dynamic walk, and that walk undeniably intersects both our mind and our heart. As our mind sees and comprehends truth as we study God's Word and as we sense the Holy Spirit convicting us to move forward to embrace it, our hearts must continually surrender to it. Thus, under this concept, repentance is the continual process that moves us further and further down the narrow path of righteousness, the way, as Jesus called it. Thus, the progressive principles of the Reformation, sola scriptura by scripture alone, sola fide by faith alone, solo gratia by grace alone, were never to end. In the early 19th century, this Protestant principle was once again to be tested as it had in the life of Martin Luther, this time in the life of William Miller. Just as Luther had unlocked the doctrine of righteousness by faith, it was William Miller who finally unlocked the time prophecies in the book of Daniel, specifically the longest one found in chapter 8. We can read it in verses 13 and 14. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, And another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. 
In the prophecy, the Holy One asked the question that up to this point, the Protestant Reformation had been trying to answer. When was Jesus finally going to come and restore his kingdom? 2300 days? According to the rule of time prophecy, we have already discovered a day stands for a year. So we're talking about a time prophecy that extends 2300 years into the future. What other than the second coming of Jesus could stand at the end of this prophecy? Or so Miller and his followers believed. So let's take a closer look at the prophecy itself. It comes at the end of a progression of the rise and fall of ancient kingdoms, just as our study in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 have already demonstrated. I encourage you to check out episode 22 and episode 30, especially if you haven't yet at this point. So the progression goes like this. The kingdoms that rise and fall start with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, then divided Rome, which turns into Europe, and, and eventually we find the little horn rising up in, and finally, the judgment. Now, we've already seen how God uses the principle of repetition and enlargement through the book of Daniel, so it should not surprise us to find the repetition again in Daniel chapter 8. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 8 and read through verse 4. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel which is in the providence of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ule. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Now we are introduced to another vision with a different animal. Instead of a predator, we have a ram, a male sheep. But notice there are some similar characteristics between this ram and one of the beasts in Daniel 7. Do you remember which beast in Daniel 7 had something that was raised up higher than the other? Think about that as we keep reading, starting in verse 5 through verse 8. Now as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable horns came up toward the four winds of heaven. So here we are introduced to another beast, this time a male goat. 
And unlike the ram, which had two horns, this goat has only one. But it is a notable horn. Notice how quickly he moves across the earth, so quickly that in the vision his feet don't even touch the ground as if he were flying. Then there is a confrontation that ensues between the goat and the ram, and the goat attacks and defeats the ram soundly. But then we have another clue to its identity revealed to us. At the height of its power, the large horn of the goat is broken and is replaced by four others. Again, we have a direct parallel between the goat here in Daniel 8 and one of the beasts in Daniel 7, particularly the third beast. All right, let's keep reading. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground, and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down, Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. Daniel 8, 9 through 12. Now there is no new beast, but rather a little horn. So this little horn first conquers all the land that had been previously occupied by the four horns of the male goat. We could call that a horizontal attack all over the face of the earth. But after that, this little horned power sets its sights vertically and actually begins to attack heaven itself, even going as far as to attack the Prince of Hosts, which we shall see as we continue our study represents Jesus. And during the reign of this little horn, the truth was cast to the ground. I think you've probably already figured out that this little horn is the same one described in Daniel 7. Now let's return to the 2300-day time prophecy William Miller was so interested in decoding in the early 18th century. Again we read in verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So then Daniel is told in his vision how long the truth would remain cast down. The truth would not be restored. The desecration of God's sanctuary would not be cleansed until the end of the 2300 days. The obvious implication would be that after the 2300 days, truth that had not been understood in its full significance would be brought to the forefront and become prominently important. But why? What truth could be so important that God would make a prophecy about its restoration in the last days? Well, before we answer that question, let's review the sequence in Daniel 8 that we've just studied. So we see first we have the ram, followed by the goat, followed by the little horn horizontal, followed by the little horn vertical, and then finally the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, at first glance, this sequence may seem like it has little or nothing in common with the sequence we've already found in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 but let's allow the Bible to continue to be its own interpreter. 
Now, some of you may have already been able to identify the symbols in the vision just by comparing the clues that were given here in Daniel 8 with the ones we've already discovered in Daniel 7. But let's continue reading the chapter to see if we can confirm your suspicions. Verses 16 through 17 and verse 20 tell us, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ule, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So the angel tells Daniel that the vision refers to the time of the end. So we can already see that any interpretation of this time prophecy that does not lead us to the time of the end would be a false interpretation. Okay, let's keep reading in verses 21 and 22. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horns that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. So, as we can see, the goat represents Greece. And from here, it becomes quite simple to interpret the rest of the symbols. If the ram stands for me to Persia and the goat stands for Greece, then the little horn here has to represent the two phases of Rome, the pagan or horizontal phase followed by the spiritual or vertical phase when it turns into the Antichrist. Then, just as in Daniel 2 and 7, the next step in the progression has to be judgment. It just makes sense, right? The cleansing of the sanctuary has to be referring to the judgment because the result of the cleansing of the sanctuary is the restoration of truth that has been cast to the ground. And if there's going to be a judgment, there has to be a universal truth or law to judge the nations by. Otherwise, how could any one of us know the standard by which we'll be judged? And of course, there is a direct connection between the law of God and the sanctuary of God. In fact, in the most holy place, where the literal presence of God dwelt, there was only one piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark, what did we find? The original tablets containing the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his own finger. This makes sense chronologically, too, when we go back to Revelation 11. When did the Word of God become immortalized or untouchable? After 1798. This was the time of the end that Daniel predicted that would give rise to the unsealing of his book. And this was when William Miller started studying the 2300 days about the cleansing of the sanctuary. And what do we find at the end of the same chapter in Revelation? Notice Revelation 11 verses 18 and 19. It reads, The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, their prophets and saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there you have it a judgment scene in Revelation that parallels the more detailed one we found in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, which read, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, 
and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. As you can see, this judgment is all about the cleansing of the sanctuary, cleansing the books that have been opened, deciding each case one by one, beginning with the dead and eventually moving along to the living. Interestingly, in the New Testament, the preaching of the gospel is intimately connected with this judgment. For when both are finished, the same event takes place, the second coming of Jesus. Thus, it should be no surprise that the text in Revelation that speaks of the fulfillment of the gospel commission Jesus gave to his disciples also speaks of this pre-advent judgment. Notice Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. You see, in the last days, the acceptance or rejection of this gospel is the determining factor of where our names are written in heaven when it's all said and done. For once the sanctuary is cleansed, it's cleansed for good. Those who are in are in, and those who are out are out. In fact, Revelation 22 speaks of this graphically, starting in verse 14 when it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. As you can see, this is serious business. Now, we didn't have time today to actually pinpoint the beginning and ending point of this prophecy. You'll have to wait till our next episode to find that out. But for now, once again, I think it is obvious that this study should cause each of us to do a little soul searching. Have I accepted the gospel of life? Am I walking in the light? Am I willing to keep walking in the light as God continues to shine truth into my life? Have I accepted the Ten Commandments as a revelation of God's will for my life? These are questions I must ask myself daily, especially as I look around and see the signs of the soon coming of Jesus all around me. This is what this podcast is all about. There has never been a better time than the present to make a decision to order your life in harmony with the light of heaven, but it still shines because if we procrastinate this decision, there will come a day when we look for the light again and will discover instead the light has passed and that we are left in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth as Jesus forewarned. Be ready for Jesus, as Revelation tells us. And the spirit of the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Adventology. Our goal in this podcast is for you to be ready for Jesus. And the best way to be ready for Jesus is to spend time getting to know him. Knowing Jesus is everything. That is why we spent the time today studying the longest time prophecy in the Bible. But don't just take my word for it. Study it out for yourself. And for a hands-on experience, I encourage you to check out our website, adventology.com, where you can get a transcript of today's episode along with any of the previous episodes we've already published. Also, if you've been blessed by this podcast, share it with a friend. Or better yet, leave a rating or review from wherever you downloaded this podcast from. You can also let me know personally how you've enjoyed the podcast by connecting with me on Facebook or on Twitter. Seriously, I really want to hear from you. All right, well, I enjoyed our time together today. and look forward to seeing you back here again for our next episode of Adventology. Until then, Maranatha.